Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have crossed into the domain of a traveler that has a taste for telling tales about the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside and take a seat by the fire and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap Nebula. Nebula podcast where nothing is taboo or wicked and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. In the land of technology, the ability to talk to others across long distances is actually quite new to the human race, especially with the immense library of history and innovation that has come with their existence, chaos, peace, love, and disasters. The internet and cell phones has created an entirely simultaneous way to communicate as well with new modes of expression that doesn't require vocals or real emotion. In my opinion though, nothing beats a good old-fashioned rotary phone-style conversation that emotes frustration, rage, envy, passion, and pure violence. Something that tapping letters and forming words on a keypad just cannot replicate. That being said, there have been instances where sessions on the other end of the line have been so ghastly and ominously bone-chilling that the very universe has shuddered. The old saying goes, a ringing phone has to be picked up. But in this case, it might be a good idea to let those go to voicemail, or to an ancient 80s answering machine complete with a cheesy message with new wave music playing over it. Without further ado, set your fingers to dial. Don't leave the receiver off the hook and charge your cordless as you prepare to hear the top 10 unsolved phone calls and messages. No one wants any unsolicited calls or telemarketers to darken their evening meal with annoying interruptions. Things have evolved since then with the advancement of spam texting having your phone make annoying notification noises. It isn't as effective as a call, but tell that to the Kaikendal family, who experienced not only texts, but random calls as well. It all started in February 2007, when 16-year-old Courtney Kaikendal's phone started sending out random texts to her friends. She didn't know exactly why this was happening, as she claimed to have no knowledge of the events and showed her parents that there was nothing on her phone that displayed the outgoing texts. It stopped for a while with no further incidents of her friends getting messages, but then the real terror began. When the texts failed to elicit a real reaction out of the people, the suspect in question began calling the members of the Kaikindle family. The caller threatened to kill them, kill their pets, and kill their grandparents. The Kaikendals contacted the police, and the calls were traced back to Courtney's phone. Of course, the obvious suspect was Courtney. The problem was that the calls continued even when Courtney's phone was turned off, or when her parents had taken it away from her. Things only got worse from there. The caller ramped it up by getting into detailed descriptions of what each family member was wearing, or what they were doing. They even went so far as to play back recordings of the calls they made to the police, and conversations they had. 
Even creepier is the recorded in-person talks the family had with authorities regarding the calls making them believe their house had been bugged, adding a new layer of fear and paranoia. All of this went on for an agonizing four months, and not one person was questioned or arrested, except one, the daughter Courtney, whose phone was the source of the calls and texts, or so it seemed. Cell phone technology has come a long way in a short amount of time, but no one is sure exactly where it began its intricacies to where it is now, so law enforcement had no reason to think cloning numbers or hijacking signals was possible. Some experts suggested that a crude version of cell phone spyware was used in this attack, but it was difficult to take apart the phone and get into the diagnostics to check especially if the suspect wanted to leave no trace of their crime. Initially, it was thought that the family was making it all up for attention, but when other families started to come forward with similar problems, the police decided to not treat it like an isolated incident. Despite multiple attempts at tracking down whoever, or what group, was responsible, to this day, there have been no developments, and the perps remain at large. Picking up the phone can be hazardous to your health, and words can't really hurt you, but combining the two can lead to, dare I say it, a deadly disconnection. The spirit world has a rich history of being unpredictable and downright screwy in terms of how it interacts with human lives. Sometimes, it can eventually be explained away, and the spooky becomes the rare, but other times, there exists no earthly answer, and that is where the tale of Charles Peck begins. In September of 2008, Mr. Peck was traveling on the Metrolink commuter train from the Chatsworth area to Los Angeles on his way to a job interview with the Van Nuys Airport. His fiancée lived there, and it felt like made more sense to be much closer. Unfortunately, this choice to relocate would not go how he would hope. In fact, it would end in tragedy. In the early afternoon, about halfway into his journey, the train was suddenly hit head-on by a Union Pacific train when the conductor had apparently not switched the tracks, being distracted, sending a text. Having no time to see the train ahead of him, and not mattering if it slowed down since the other train was barreling down on them, disaster struck with the wreck ending and multiple fatalities and over a hundred injured making it the worst train disaster in Metrolink history. Sadly, Charles Peck was among one of those killed as his proximity to the impact was nearly dead center mass. His body was also one of the last to be pulled from the debris. How does any of this sync up with a phone call? I thought you'd never ask because this gets really freaky. The night of the disaster, and up until his body was discovered, Peck's phone dialed a number of people, including his sons, his fiancée, and his brother. All the calls were a few seconds of silence before hanging up. Nobody's sure how the calls were made, but there are some people who believe it was Peck's spirit calling his loved ones to say goodbye. Keep in mind his body was found 12 hours later, all while these calls were being placed, which means he was already deceased prior to this. What is even scarier is that of all of his possessions, Mr. Peck's phone was never recovered. Some have an explanation for this, although it is hard to prove or even disprove. The first is that someone recovered his phone and tried calling people in his contact list, but when they tried to speak, they couldn't due to heavy damage on the mic and the phone. Others claim it was merely a technical glitch after the crash, causing the phone to go haywire until it finally just died, which is why no more calls came in. 
The main issue with these theories is that the foam was, again, never returned or the pieces found. It is more than probable that this ethereal mystery will never be solved. The 310 to Yuma or a choo-choo to Hades. Whatever track you find yourself on, just make sure the conductor punches the right ticket. The sea can be calming and great for those that know how to navigate the open waters, but things can turn bad very quickly if given the right conditions. Many have lost their lives due to waves, creatures, and even strange phenomena leaving families reeling with the aftermath of no answers. With the case of the crew of the Cassie Nicole, this is no exception. On April 11, 1990, four men set sail on a fishing expedition from McIntosh County Pier in Georgia. Aboard the ship, there was Nathan Neesmith, his brother Billy Joe, his nephew Keith Wilkes, and his friend Franklin Brantley. Their destination was an uncharted reef just off the coast of South Carolina. Five weeks before embarking, the owner of the boat, Doug Tyson, had the vessel undergo maintenance with the hull and various routine repairs to prepare for their seven-day trip. In the late afternoon, the crew set sail. The men had all their provisions in order with the weather in their favor, but it didn't last long. In the early morning of April 12th, around 3 or 4 a.m., the boat suddenly capsized, beginning to take on water. With no other choice, the men were forced to abandon ship, taking refuge on a life raft. Facing a life and death situation of survival, Nathan made the very difficult decision to leave the men to find help. He left the men with food and water and took a wooden box from the wreckage as a makeshift craft. Within five days, he was found and rescued, but tragically, the other men were never discovered. The only things recovered were a life vest and a sleeping bag. Most unsolved shipwreck stories would normally end here, but this is just getting warmed up. For the next six weeks, the crew's family was trying to piece together what may have happened and getting nowhere with their leads. Then, one day, Nathan's sister Onita received a distorted phone call from a man speaking Spanish. He kept repeating their phone number and her last name with static and weird connection interruptions in between. That same day, Doug received a similar call with a man repeating his number and his last name. When he went to visit the Neesmith family, he brought up the call and, to his horror, they said they experienced the exact same thing. And this is where it gets even weirder. Over the next year, around five calls came in. Same bad connection, same man, and same repetition. Two of those calls went to Doug and the others went to Onita. Then on March 6, 1991, she got a final call but this time, one sentence was uttered in English, and the voice said, I'm bringing him home. After that, no other calls came in, but even more unsettling is that none of the men were returned either. Since the last call, there were a few speculations as to why that was said, such as the men being held captive, leading many to believe that they were rescued, but were instead held against their will with their kidnappers toying with their families. One of the main problems with this was that this was 1990. No cell phones and getting a hold of the numbers must have been very tricky, especially if it was an international abduction. Why all the psychological torture also comes into question, as they have nothing to gain from this. Even more of a terrifying theory is that Nathan ended up killing the men to save himself due to a lack of rations and being afraid that they would all die. Based on his account of using a wooden box to paddle out and find help, 
with no water or food makes this theory seem plausible, coupled with the fact that the bodies of the men were never found also creates a morbid and sadistic possibility. The hard truth of this entire scenario is that no one really knows what happened out there, and what transpired in the year after most likely will leave this a permanent mystery. Batten down the hatches or take a trip to Davy Jones' locker. The seemingly dangerous choices we all make in life. In the deep blue, however, it truly is sink or swim. Dining out has its share of annoyances like tipping because no one knows how or when to give gratuity. Everyone feels obligated to give a reward and help the workers get better wages and show the owners that their efforts are appreciated. However, ordering takeout from restaurants carries with it a set of other annoyances, such as abusive customers, hang-ups, and prank calls. Let's take a look at L'Enfant under those said problems. In the early 80s, there was a restaurant in Philadelphia called the Marrakesh, which was opened by a Lebanese man named Bashir Kujak. Before his efforts, he was abducted in Lebanon by the Palestinian Liberation Army on the grounds that they thought he was an agent for the CIA or an operative for Mossad. He attempted suicide while in captivity in a camp and was finally rescued when he stayed in a hospital inside the American Embassy where his family was contacted and finally sent home. He thought his troubles were far behind him after he got stateside, but they had just begun. When Bashir got back and opened his restaurant, he decided to expand after three years and, in 1983, opened a second location in Washington, D.C. Everything was going good, but then the calls started. The employees at the D.C. location referred to the bothersome person as L'Enfant, or the Young Ones, because it seemed like more than one person calling. Sometimes, L'Enfant called with death threats, and other times, the person just swore or would get very sexual. They also did voices pretending to be a Middle Eastern man, a small black child, and a little girl, just to name a few. They would call the restaurant multiple times, almost every day, to where the restaurant getting 20 phone calls in a day wasn't at all unusual. The crazy thing is that this went on for over a decade, and during one especially busy period, which lasted for about four years, the restaurant received well over 7,000 phone calls. As a result of the harassment, Bashir's location suffered a high turnover rate of workers with people getting tired of dealing with the random craziness. He was in and out of psychiatric hospitals due to the stress, became paranoid and anxiety-ridden, leaving his sister to run things. He lost relationships, friends, and business associates due to his deteriorating mental health over the situation. He had some theories as to why he was getting this treatment, and it stems from his time in captivity. He was convinced it was retaliation from the PLA, where they continue their torture from afar, psychologically speaking. Evidence that points to this is his car being vandalized and a Star of David being etched into the paint. Even one of his girlfriends was threatened and claimed she was being followed at one point. Bashir went to the authorities, of course, and local PD could only do so much, so they contacted the FBI, who did a more comprehensive investigation trying to narrow down the source of the calls. After months of their texts trying to figure it out, all they could determine is that they were using payphones around the DC area and nothing further could be done about it, considering how many people back then used them and there was no surveillance cameras to pick up anything around the time the calls were made. 
It took nearly 10 years for the calls to get less and less infrequent, to where they rarely happened at all, but the damage had already been done. Today, both locations are operated by Bashir's sister, and he has stepped down, leading a simple life, pursuing anything but running a business. As of today, there are no further leads on the harassers, and no more calls have been received. Yes, I'd like to place an order for delivery. I'll take the Hell No Souffle, the Leave Me Alone Lasagna, and a side of insanity fries. A tip? Yes, I have one for you. The past can come back to haunt you. It is best that you be prepared, if it does. Lots of you listening have experienced working a retail job and all the fun and games that comes with it. Most of you have been yelled at, berated, verbally bashed, and maybe even assaulted by violent customers. Sometimes retail can be great for those working in the back, or stalking, because interaction with the customers is at a minimum. Even then, you can still be in a dangerous predicament, whether you realize it or not. And that is where the case of Tracy Kirkpatrick takes a deadly turn. In 1989, Tracy was a 17-year-old high school student in Frederick, Maryland that had big plans of going to college, becoming a lawyer, and serving her community. She made good grades, stayed out of trouble, and had many friends. She was also trying to be financially independent by earning her own money by working various jobs, including one at Eileen's Ladies Sportswear in her hometown. Being underage, she was only allowed to work a certain number of hours each week, and was trusted to work alone from time to time. Back then, labor laws were much more laxed as well as the terms of working conditions. Nowadays, minors are not allowed to be on their own. One day, on March 15th, Tracy was left to organize the back room of the store while her manager went off to run some errands, checking in periodically with her one last time, around 8pm, noticing everything was going smoothly. Her day was almost over, and there wasn't much else to do but close up. Around the time that she was supposed to be gone, the security guard and the shopping center noticed the lights in the business were on around 10.50pm, and that the sign still said open. Opening the front door, he cautiously walked in and found no one inside, no customers, and nothing out of the ordinary. He proceeded to look in the back, and it was there that he made a grisly discovery. Tracy Kirkpatrick was on the ground in a pool of blood with multiple stab wounds to her chest and neck. There was no weapon found, no suspects, and seemingly no motive behind the murder since no cash was missing or store items, just Tracy's purse. The mystery gets even deeper from here. After the police showed up, they canvassed the area looking for anyone that may have seen anything unusual, any shifty people, or heard anything. They came up short. Being that late, the area was mostly deserted and most of the workers had gone home for the night. They of course questioned the security guard as well, who happened to be the son of a former sheriff, but there was nothing to tie him to the crime. With nothing more to draw on and a severe lack of evidence and witnesses, the crime went cold. It wasn't until three months later that an ominous phone call took place. A confession hotline in Las Vegas charged callers by the minute who wanted to air their secrets anonymously or vent about things they have done, and also charged the listeners who wanted to tune in to said confessions. One night, a caller who identified himself as Don made a startling statement saying he was from Frederick, Maryland, and that he had stabbed a young girl there. He said he thought about turning himself in, but then decided not to. He then apologized and hung up. 
The police received a copy of the call so that they could put it out to other radio stations in hopes that someone might be able to identify the voice. But since he had given a false name and had not specified that it was Tracy that he had killed, there was almost nothing to peg him as her killer. Eventually, the case went from a glimmer of hope to ice cold again. In a weird bout of vague clairvoyance, friends of Tracy revealed that she made comments of her own death, but never went into why. They played it off as her having an overactive imagination. Psychics also contacted the police, but were of little help. Over the next decade, the tiny town grew to one of the largest in Maryland, and Tracy's murder slowly faded from the residents' memories, but her family is still asking questions and occasionally getting help from the online sleuth community, since the crime has unfortunately been rotting in the local cold case files. Only two suspects have been questioned in the past three decades, and one detective in 94 claimed to have solved it, but this has remained a big unsolved incident, and may stay that way. High hopes and pie-in-the-sky dreams can flicker and fade in the blink of an eye. Humanity is cruel and thoughtless, but even worse, unpredictable. Keep your wits about you, and if fate calls, be cautious before you pick up. Children and phones can be a recipe for tragedy and disaster, since no one really knows what is being said between the two parties. It becomes even more scary when children talk to adults that they either barely know or don't know at all. They are susceptible and naive. Even the best efforts of parents and teachers may not dissuade a kid's curiosity, as is the case with Amy Milkovic. On April 27, 1989, which seems to be the year of misery, 10-year-old Amy was in class getting a lecture from a police officer on stranger danger and to never go anywhere with people they don't know. The problem was that there was a man that Amy was talking to that was not necessarily a stranger to her as they had talked over the phone a few times. Her brother overheard one conversation she had with this man and Amy even told her friends about him, but she didn't tell her parents or any other adults that he was calling her. The day Amy disappeared, she told a friend she was meeting her secret caller to go buy her mother a present. The man claimed to work with her mother and told Amy her mother had just been given a promotion. After school, Amy and a friend walked together until Amy went off to meet him. After Amy had met the man, he allowed her to call her mother, who assumed that Amy was calling from home. It was only after she arrived home that she realized that Amy had never been there. A frantic search of Bay Village, Ohio was done, but sadly, the little girl's body was not found until February 8th, 1990. Her head had signs of trauma and it appeared that she was probably sexually assaulted and had been stabbed. It also looked like the body was dumped a short time after she was kidnapped. The barbaric murder made national headlines and was featured on America's Most Wanted. Yet no one has ever been arrested in connection with the crime. Efforts to trace the call were futile as it led to dead ends, with the caller most likely using payphones. Many items such as Amy's turquoise earrings, a binder, and her backpack were never recovered. The only items recovered have been a blanket and curtain found at the scene, with some of her DNA on it that are the only key pieces of evidence in the case, and authorities have been asking the public for assistance and to call them if anyone recognizes them. As of today, tests are being done on hair follicles found on the blanket, but nothing has been found. Authorities are still hopeful that it yields some answers. Every parent's worst nightmare is that their children go through any suffering 
or were killed by a scumbag with no justice to be found. It is imperative that you educate your kids and keep an eye on their activities. Be vigilant, but not smothering. They'll thank you someday. Politics are a delicate tightrope. One slip up, and you'll end up in a quagmire of discourse and negative social critique. Earth's problems can be blamed on coups, killings, and mutinies, but one in particular still holds a lot of mystique and controversy, the JFK assassination. Multiple levels exist since he was killed, but one goes above even the Lee Harvey Oswald gunman on the grassy knoll theory, and that is the mystery caller who seemingly predicted the assassination. On November 22, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was about to roll into Dallas in a motorcade, and all seemed well. Okay, maybe not that well, as multiple calls were coming in about the president possibly being targeted. However, just after 10 a.m., a switchboard operator at General Electric in Oxnard, California, got an ominous call. There was no one talking on the line, but since the caller could have been in some sort of trouble, the operator asked a co-worker to pick up as well. That's when the caller whispered that the president would be killed at 10.10 a.m. The caller, who sounded like a middle-aged woman reading things out loud, whispered some other warnings, such as, The Justice. The Supreme Court. There's going to be fire in all the windows. The government is going up in flames. Also during the call, the caller put down the phone and dialed between 12 and 15 digits. The operator asked if she needed any help, and the woman responded, in a clear voice, no, I'm using the phone. Then another call came in after 10.10 a.m. insisting that the president was going to be killed at 10.30 a.m. At 10.25 a.m., they disconnected the call, thinking the caller was just a disturbed individual. Meanwhile, in Dallas, Texas, President John F. Kennedy was driving down Elm Street in his motorcade. The shots that killed the president were fired at 12.30 p.m. Central Time, meaning the time in California was 10.30 a.m., exactly the time the caller mentioned. The phone company reported the call about an hour after the president was shot, and the FBI wrote a report about it and were unable to trace the call, although the FBI still believes it was just a disturbed woman. Regardless, the mystery caller has never been identified. In the years since this happened, the Warren Commission, the panel responsible for studying the assassination, never really looked too deeply into this and instead focused on Lee Harvey Oswald as the sole culprit to the murder. Shortly before the Dallas trip, events were cancelled because of death threats and Kennedy had a lot of enemies due to the Cuban Missile Crisis among other international turmoil, so this was not all that unusual. The narrowing down of the exact time of his death, however, is still too incredible to ignore. While the origin of the call wasn't clear, the switchboard served about 12,000 lines in the Oxnard area. News reports at the time said that included Camarillo, Oxnard, and surrounding communities. Of those, 60% were party lines, and the telephone company was unable to identify the caller or the call's origin. Papers all over the country were published showcasing the call, but no one was ever identified, and no one was brought in for questioning. As of today, the caller is most likely presumed dead, or virtually impossible, to track down. We do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Words spoke by JFK on the moon landing. 
I wonder how long they took to investigate his death before they got lazy. If there was really a second gunman, or if the Cubans had anything to do with- Whoops. Almost got lost down that rabbit hole. The 90s was either really cool or really scary, depending on what part of America you were living in. Technology was on the rise, but so were serial killers, which had not seen such a resurgence since the mid-70s. The difference was that sex work was hitting epidemic levels, along with a lot of societal upheaval, but humanity was at a crossroads in general. Is it any wonder that murderers had nearly free reign around this time? Let's ask the Long Island Killer. In 1996, New York was even more grimy than it was in the 70s and 80s, with prostitutes and Times Square running rampant. It was easy to move in and out of areas without anyone being the wiser, and since the victims were hookers, most cops didn't look twice at the unsolved cases. The killer in question is said to get his start around this time with an unknown body count that went well past the new millennium. The killer was good. Most of the bodies were not found until 2010, with more being found the following year. There were absolutely no leads and no way of figuring out a motive to the deaths. A regular Americana version of Jack the Ripper. All the women victims have been strangled and wrapped in burlap sacks before being dumped. It wasn't enough that the killer ended the lives of these poor women, but he took to tormenting the victims' families. It started in 2006 when Sarah Carnes was sitting in her Times Square hotel room when she says she received a cell phone call from a blocked number. She said the voice on the other line, an unknown male caller, who is calm and matter-of-fact, revealed personal details about her friend, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who vanished days earlier in July 2007 while working as an escort in New York City. The man said she just saw her at a whorehouse in Queens. Then the line went dead. That was the only phone call she received. Then on July 10th, 2009, after 24-year-old Melissa Bartholomew went missing, her younger sister started to receive phone calls from Melissa's cell, seven in all, with none of them lasting more than three minutes. The last call, which lasted about 40 seconds, took place on August 26, 2009, at one in the morning. During the brief exchange, the unidentified caller admitted he killed Melissa. It was later revealed that her body was among those found in December of 2010. No other calls were placed to the other victims' families, perhaps because he either didn't want to push his luck or because he didn't have access to the victims' cell phones. Whatever the case, authorities couldn't find out who placed them and was an ongoing cold case with frustrating promises in the forms of these teaser calls. As of 2023, there have been major developments in this case with a suspect in custody by the name of Rex Herman. Sarah Carnes, one of the first people to receive one of the tormenting calls, says that Rex was the man on the other line. In an interview on an episode of 2020, she said she reported the phone call to police at the time and made the connection after hearing his voice in a now viral interview on YouTube about his work as an architect. Rex was arrested on July 13th, 2023 in connection with three murders after his DNA was pulled from a pizza box he threw out, getting a match of 99.6% found on the victims. While they're still trying to narrow down the cell phone triangulation, and also the DNA, it's all damning evidence. There is still lots of groundwork ahead to prepare a trial, and there is still no guarantee that he is their man. As of now, things remain in limbo, but hopefully, justice will finally be served. 
Being a quote-unquote call girl becomes problematic when she forgets to turn off the red light. That can be a signal for the John in question to make himself at home and abuse the hospitality offered to him that no amount of compensation can fix. Around the globe, there are thousands upon thousands of cold cases, and they grow with every passing day. The ones that are so old that the investigators that attempted to tackle them are either dead or retired, with only amateur sleuths to continue a trail that hardly exists. Then the most unlikely events can rejuvenate decades-old mysteries, as is the case with Judith Himes. In the 1960s, abortion was definitely seen as a sin across America, and women were either expected to die during pregnancy, keep the baby, or lose it naturally, as it was all God's will. Back alley abortions with clothes hangers were commonplace, and many deaths occurred due to botched procedures. Unfortunately, a young lady named Judith Himes was one of the long line of victims due to this, and had an even more unfortunate disposition of being from Coral Gables, which is in Florida, a state not known for their common sense, intelligence, or empathy. In 1965, Judith was 20 years old working as a medical secretary at the University of Miami Medical School. In August of that same year, she discovered that she was pregnant after taking a test, but using the name B. Kenny to keep it a secret. Being single, she also did not reveal that she was pregnant as it would end in her either being shunned by her community or ostracized by her family. Faced with a gut-wrenching decision, she scheduled an illegal procedure on September 14th with a Hungarian doctor named George Hadou, who was posing as a physician. She had told her friend that she was leaving work early to buy a watch, withdrew $300, and went to her appointment. While it was confirmed that she showed up, what isn't known is what happened to her next, as she vanished without a trace shortly after. Three weeks later, a rental car registered in her name was found abandoned about 650 miles away in Atlanta, Georgia, with traces of blood found on the back seat. Since the car had sat there for several days before being discovered, investigators were unable to properly examine the rest of it. Interestingly enough, a local resident had spotted a man in his 30s parking it, and as he exited the car, he removed a duffel bag from the back and walked away. He has never been identified. About three months later, the doctor that helped Judith was arrested for impersonating a physician, jumped bail, and has also vanished. Investigators do not believe he had anything to do with her death, as her body was not found, and Judith has extensive medical knowledge, making it highly unlikely that she either bled out or died later. With no other leads, no further witnesses, and no body, the case went cold for 25 years, and then some incredibly bizarre calls started to come in. The unusual occurrences began in 1990 when Coral Gables Police Captain Chuck Schur went to a narcotics lecture at a police academy 200 miles west of Omaha, Nebraska. Nothing of note occurred there and shortly after he returned home. However, two weeks later, he received a phone call from a man claiming to be Steve Brown, a popular radio talk show host in Omaha, claiming that an anonymous caller had given him information about Judy's disappearance. Shear told him that he was unfamiliar with this case and would have to call him back. A day later, he did, but the DJ was confused. He stated that he had never called Shear and didn't know anything about this case. He was even more confused because the other caller had somehow given Shear his unlisted phone number. 
even strangers that he never mentioned the case at his lecture, and it wasn't exactly something he discussed, confusing both men even more. But it only gets creepier from here. Two days later, an unidentified woman called Shearer, and all she did was repeat the same thing several times. Judy Himes is alive and lives in Omaha. Every time he asked for more information, she would repeat the line and nothing more. Then she hung up, never to be heard from again. This led Shearer to believe Judith was, in fact, alive somewhere in Omaha, but the mystery deepens. In March of that same year, an article about Judith was published in the local newspaper. Shortly after that, Shearer received yet another anonymous phone call and claimed that he was an FBI informant who had spent several weeks with Dr. Haju in Budapest, Hungary. The informant also gave Shearer a phone number for the doctor, to which Shearer contacted Interpol and gave them the info. It appeared to belong to someone with the same name as a Jew, but was never located. Police believe that it was unlikely that he was responsible for the phone calls either. The show Unsolved Mysteries was aired not long after Shearer contacted the program to run the story and, sure enough, calls poured in to him with anonymous people telling him to stop looking, that she died from a botched abortion, and was most likely in a watery grave, which is insensitive, cruel, and nasty. Judy's family and friends are still searching for answers in her disappearance, with the mysterious calls giving them hope that she may still be alive somewhere. As of today, there has been little follow-up, with no suspects ever questioned. Times they are always a-changin', sometimes for the better, and sometimes for the worst. Just be sure to remember that humans can be susceptible to change in sinister ways, causing those in desperate times to seek out those that might do them harm. Listen to one another and keep an open mind. You never know when you might need the same kind of help. With extraterrestrials, UFOs, and other interstellar phenomena, the craziest stuff comes not from the stars, but more so from your own home. No one knows how long the Earth has really existed, or what has visited it, or what is still there. No, I don't mean greys, or lizardmen in high places, although this last occurrence could possibly deal with such theories if you dive too deep into the conspiracy pool, and it all started on a little radio show called Coast to Coast AM with host Art Bell. I'm sure a lot of you have at least heard of this show, or tuned in once or twice out of some form of curiosity, or just plain boredom. Most of the callers were crackpots, tinfoil hat wearers, or just crank calls from highly imaginative minds designed to stir the hoax pot, so to speak. Every so often, however, a questionable call would come in that led people to believe it was real, and on September 11th, 1997, this was considered the most notorious of all his calls. During one of his normally scheduled broadcasts, Art Bell opened a special reserve line for those with information about Area 51 because, for whatever reason, that was a hot topic at the time. He spent the next few hours fielding callers that were mostly pulling his leg or coming up with wild impossible theories, as per usual. Then, out of nowhere, a caller emerged that began his dialogue with a frantic greeting, stating that he didn't have much time and his position was being triangulated on. Then he started to say some very troubling things in a sad, sobbing demeanor. Here's the recording. You be the judge. Um, I, I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, time. Um, well, look, let's begin by finding 
The caller was suddenly cut off as the station lost power for five seconds, the first time in the station's history. Art announced that they were on backup power and that something knocked them off the air. The satellite uplink transmitter had failed for unknown reasons, and for the rest of the night, the topic in question for each caller was about what or who caused the program to be prematurely interrupted. Even after the events of that night, there was still no concrete facts to back up why they lost power or if it had anything to do with the ramblings of the mystery caller. In a twist in 1998, another caller was patched in claiming that it was all a joke, but many noted that the tone and manner of his voice did not match the original, leading many to believe it was a military cover-up in an attempt to cover their tracks. Why the year wait though, no one knows. To this day, long after Art Bell's passing, theories still swirl as to what happened, from aliens themselves interfering due to sensitive information being spilled, to the government tapping into Art's program somehow, overhearing the call, and promptly killing the broadcast. If you want to delve further into the waiting pool of Wackaloon paranoia, you can search up more of this online. Many other outlets have covered this far greater than I have, and more in depth over the years. Are they listening? Is your home nothing more than a beacon for them? Are you all alone on that floating orb of dirt and water? Watch the skies, dear humans. The universe may have more definitive answers as time goes on, in ways you least expected, and in ways you may not want. And so at last we come to the end of our unsolicited operators from beyond the pale. Thank you so much for supporting this program. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoy narrating. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to follow me for news about the podcast on Instagram at the Nightcap Nebula Pod. I also have merchandise on TeePublic under the Nightcap Nebula Podcast, such as t-shirts and mugs for when you want to pour out some hot cocoa and get cozy by the fire as you listen to my segments. Until next time, be safe 
and stay curious.